Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy, international development, humanitarian community, pretty much anyone who is interested in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and now on with the show. Unique among countries in the world, Mexico considers femicide as a crime distinct from homicide. Sometimes known as feminicide, this is the crime of murdering a woman or girl on account of her gender. Since the outbreak of COVID-19 in March 2020, the documented numbers of femicide in parts of Mexico have skyrocketed. This includes a part of the state of Mexico, near Mexico City, known as the Periphery. And it is here that my guest today, Caroline Tracy, has reported on the increased frequency of femicide and actions that local groups are taking to fight back against this trend. Caroline Tracy is a writer and doctoral candidate in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, Her article on femicide in Mexico was published as part of the Stanley Center's Red Flags or Resilience series that uses journalism to explore the connections between the coronavirus pandemic and factors for risk and resilience to mass violence and atrocities around the world. This episode was produced in partnership with the Stanley Center. To view Caroline Tracy's article and other stories in this series, please visit resilience.stanleycenter.org. And now here is my conversation with writer Caroline Tracy. I think that it is sort of a kind of like legal or philosophical contribution of Mexico. That I th- So my understanding of the philology of the term and sort of the legal history around it is that the term femicide uh, was coined in the U.S. in the 1970s by Diana Russell, I believe, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And it, it, of course, refers to homicides that are motivated by gender, homicides of women motivated by gender. Um, and then it gets translated into Spanish. And in Spanish, an extra syllable is added. So that it's feminicidio um, with this extra syllable in the middle that refers to the structural element of it. So you have this um, phenomenon of feminicidio, which is the murder of women societally, and then individuals, um, I think individual homicides are often still referred to as as femicidios. Uh, That's specific to the Mexican case from what I can tell that in other, including in other countries in Latin America, extra syllable is not quite as common. Uh, I don't speak Spanish, but that extra syllable carries like a more societal wide implication. Right. So it's the, the, the sort of, the way I understand it is the difference between the uh, direct translation of femicide and feminicidio, which is with this extra syllable is that the, um, the new term with the extra syllable refers to feminicide as a societal phenomenon, mm. not just as an individual act. And so it then gets uh, kind of codified in Mexican law in 2007. There was a law, it's called the, the General Law of Access to a Life Free of Violence for Women. 
And that's where um, the term gets defined as essentially gender violence taken to its extreme. And so one of the big fights, I think, when uh, a feminicide happens is that you have to convince the authorities to mark it as such that, um, that in fact it was gender motivated. Um, and then following the 2007 law, there's also a, a really important court case um, that it's pertinent to uh, in what's called the Campo Algoronero, which was an event in Ciudad Juarez on the border. Ciudad Juarez was denying to qualify these deaths as feminicides. And I think possibly Mexico's National Commission of Human Rights stepped in um, and, and agreed with that decision. And so it went to the, Inter the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights where they uh, ruled that in fact, these were feminicides, that these were gender violence taken to their extreme. And I think that that decision, this Campo Algoronero is, um, which, you know, it's a very sort of famous document that um, I think really changed the course of the way that the term was applied legally, that um, it, it, it paved the way for more, more homicides of women to be considered, to, be, to, to qualify as, as feminicides. And I guess it, it sounds sort of strange to be arguing for them to be qualified as feminicides, but um, the, the benefit, of course, is that then you signal that this is a, this is a real problem. So much of, of your article takes place in an area called the periphery, an area where femicide is particularly a, a tragic and urgent uh, problem right now. Can you just um, take listeners, explain listener, what do you mean by the periphery when we're speaking in, in the context of, of Mexican geography? And Mexico City for a long time was the federal district. Uh, it was sort of a a city-state, if you will, um, similar to Washington, D.C. Now it has its own city charter, so it's, a, it's essentially also a city-state, but with um, a mayor, it, with, a, with a city government in, in a way that it didn't previously have. Um, but Mexico City proper uh, is surrounded by municipalities that are not part of that federal district, what is now Mexico City, and which belong to the surrounding state, which is called the state of Mexico. And the state of Mexico has an interesting geography in which the, the, what's known as the periphery are municipalities that are kind of pegged directly to Mexico City, um, mostly in the north and east of the state, whereas the western half of the state, which is much larger, sort of has two lobes, an eastern lobe that's smaller and a western lobe that's larger. Um, the western lobe of the state is where uh, most of the wealth is, um, where the political power has generally been concerned. And so you have this phenomenon of municipalities that really are part of Mexico City, but jurisdictionally are not part of Mexico City. And those municipalities, um, which are the ones that I talk about in, in the article, have absorbed most of the rural to urban migration uh, to Mexico City in the last decades. So if you were to come to visit Mexico City and um, see the sort of central boroughs, those are 
for as for as cheap as they appear to an American visitor, right? Um, they they're very expensive relative to what most Mexicans make, and so the affordable housing, um, as well as the remaining industrial jobs that are in this region, are in the periphery. And there are, I guess, several reasons for which there is a high rate of feminicide in the state of Mexico and specifically in the periphery. I think that one, um, one is poverty that, uh, that yeah, th these, these municipalities have a very high rate of poverty. Another is um, that a lot of people talk to me about is the public transportation system of Mexico City proper does not extend into the periphery. So many people are subjected to very long and complicated commutes uh, and, and, that, and the, the public transportation is something that people talk about frequently as being very dangerous that, you know, people have been on um, buses where, you know, the driver gets stopped at gunpoint and everyone gets robbed. Like the, these, that's a type of story that people told me a number of times in my, uh, in my research. And then um, I think, you know, an interesting response to that, that I mentioned very briefly at the end of the article uh, by some of these feminist collectives that are uh, described in the article is there's sort of been a, a surge, maybe not a surge, small surge um, by these feminist groups in trying to promote bicycling in the periphery, which I mean, it's, a, it's going to be a very challenging, uh, you know, the infrastructure is not there for bicycles, but I think it's a very kind of promising and inspiring route of activism, um, given the, the security uh, concerns in public transportation. And then the other somewhat more complicated uh, reason for the high rate of feminicides has to do with this odd Eastern Western lobe geography and the concentration of political power in the Western half of the state that, um, that I was describing before, where the, an interesting thing about the state is that the same party that ruled Mexico, so Mexico had essentially a one party state for about 70 years, ending in 2000 after some reforms to try and make the country more democratic. And so most states at some point or another turned over to an opposition party and you've had more um, sort of like, you know, democratic back and forth, I suppose. Um, but the state of Mexico has, has remained ruled by um, the PRI, which was the, the one party state and essentially by one family for uh, a collectively, for, for many terms, I, I I would have to double check the number exactly, but um, you you just have a, a concentration of power, and so I think that it has made the state government less responsive to mm. citizens, um, and especially because you have this eastern western divide, the eastern half where the periphery is 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 somewhat forgotten um, or neglected by by the state government. So, you know, throughout the world, we've seen this so-called shadow pandemic in which uh, in conjunction with COVID-19 related lockdowns, we've seen dramatic rises in gender based violence. Um, what do we know about how that you know, shadow pandemic has manifested itself in the periphery? One statistic I can give you off the top of my head um, is that 
in Ecatepec, which is one of the cities that I talk about in the article. It's a city of, of 1.6 million um, in, in the state of Mexico uh, and in the periphery. Um, there was a 19% increase in feminicides from, from 2019 to 2020. So that's huge. Yeah. I mean, just a really staggering uh, increase in feminicide. And I mean, that's just feminicide, right? Like that you, you had, it's not even like gender-based violence. This is like the murder of women increased by 20%. Exactly. That is, that's like an absolutely shocking statistic. Yeah. And I, I think it is rightly shocking. And, uh, you know, but the the sort of complex thing about um, feminicide that I was sort of signaling earlier is that it is actually kind of a win for for murders to be flagged yeah. as feminicide. Right. So I think that it would take uh, somewhat you know, a better statistician than me, um, statistician rather, to um, to really parcel out like how many more murders of women were there and uh, how many more of them were categorized as, yeah. as feminicides. Because I think that on the surface, it's an extremely staggering statistic and probably rightly so, right? That, that I think it's it's correct that there was an increase in gender violence uh, from one year to the other, and especially given the, the pandemic. Um, but it's also, you know, I don't, there are, there may be other sort of complicating factors where perhaps there were some state authorities that were more willing to categorize things as feminicides and that's actually a good thing. Right. Um, so that's, it's a statistics, but it's an imperfect statistic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, it's rather staggering and, and it's, all, that's, that's precisely murders, right. That's um, not a statistic about gender violence, about sexual violence, um, because you also saw, of course, increases in those things. And I think that there were a lot of complicating factors for women, um, directly tied to the pandemic, such as the loss of work or the need to stay home to, um, care for children, uh, and, and the loss of income associated with that, the, the sort of loss of freedom associated with loss of income, um, I think that all of these things really uh, hit the periphery particularly hard, the periphery of Mexico City, because it, like I said, it's it's more inaccessible by public transportation. It's more impoverished. Many of the jobs are industrial, so they are uh, more likely to go to men. And, and so I think that you did see a very disproportionate effect for women mm-hmm. there. So you noted earlier that the state is generally speaking more unresponsive to people in the periphery as opposed to other parts of the state of Mexico. When it comes to addressing questions and and prosecuting the crime of feminicide, I mean, is the state present at all? Is there like a meaningful response by the police? Gosh, that's a very good question. I think that the... One problem is that the, the police are also considered to be very corrupt. Um, that I think Ecatepec specifically has the highest rates in Mexico of, of distrust of policemen and of, of experiences with corruption with policemen. Um, and so I think it's a, a very big challenge for families of victims to get the state to respond and also 
the sort of logistics of the follow-up are also very challenging given I keep harking, uh, harping on this odd geography of the state, but it, it makes a very big impact on people's lives when the state capital is hours from the periphery, right? And and there isn't good public transportation. So if you don't own a car, uh, just getting to your meeting is is a challenge. And I think that for people in the periphery, because the periphery is pegged right up against Mexico City, the the real comparison for them is how things are done in Mexico City. And of course there are problems with the bureaucracy and the authorities in Mexico City, but people do observe that it is a more responsive and less corrupt government there. It is in this context of increasing gender-based violence and increased feminicide uh, and a generally unresponsive you know, state structures, state authorities, that you see the rise and you report on the rise of activist groups, of, of women's groups kind of taking measures into their own hands. Can you sort of describe how it is that many of these activist groups, some of which are our performance artists, are our performance artists, came to sort of be, play such a, a prominent role in addressing gender-based violence in the periphery? Sure. Mexico has a very active feminist movement, mostly composed of grassroots collectives. And I think for a long time, the the core of that movement, in as much as there is a core, because I think it it does largely take place through through small collectives, has has been in Mexico City, right? Um, it's it's been very concentrated in the capital, perhaps associated with the National University, but the majority of the activism has has long taken place in the state capital. And I think things started to change with the country's iteration of the Me Too movement came about in March of 2019. And it, so from the collectives I have interviewed, it seems like many of them got started either around that time or shortly after, or then uh, in March of 2020, um, when there's sort of a timeline, an accelerating timeline of feminist activism that in, so in March 2019 was the Me Too movement. In August 2019, there were some really big protests in Mexico City after um, a girl in the northwestern, the far northwestern borough of the city um, was sexually assaulted by two policemen. And then the footage, Mexico has a very, Mexico City has a very extensive state, state surveillance system. And, and the, so there's camera, there are cameras everywhere. The footage was mysteriously lost. The policemen were returned to the forest right away. And so there were very big protests after that. And I think you saw direct action, right? Like graffiti and um, let's see what else. The secretary of citizen security got a, a glitter bomb thrown on him. The um, the doors of the national palace were burned. You saw this dramatic rise in direct action at the same time as you saw many more women, many more young women, especially mobilizing. So I think after that Me Too movement, after August, 2019, and then there's sort of another peak in February and March of 2020 um, in which 
there were two very high profile um, feminicides in Mexico City in February of 2020. And then March 8th is the, the annual Women's Day March. And so that March fell at a moment when people were extremely furious um, at what was going on. And then sort of wrapped up in that is that the current president, whose name is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, but he goes by AMLO, which are his initials, has not responded in a particularly respectful way. In fact, he's responded, I think, in a downright offensive way to, to the protests. So he, um, with every opportunity, has, has alienated the feminists further. And I think that you just have seen this snowball effect of, um, of feminist activism in Mexico City, but also because more women were sort of having their consciousness raised um, in, in other sites as well. And it's, I'm, I mean, I think then um, there, there are sort of like two ways that this came about in the periphery. One was women who had previously been involved in collectives in Mexico City who either felt like they needed to do something in their home communities or felt alienated from, from the sort of capital line uh, collectives who had different concerns or both, right? Um, for whatever reason, they distanced themselves from, from the collectives in the capital and, and began to work directly in the municipalities where they grew up. And then you also see collectives that come about because young women were learning about things on the internet, uh, especially during the pandemic. I interviewed one, uh, one collective that formed during the pandemic um, because, because women were seeing these sort of shadow pandemic type of um, things, type of complicating factors in their lives uh, and, and wanted to know more and, and ended up finding each other just via the, via the internet. So I think that in the last, really it's been in the last two years that uh, the feminist movement has, has, has grown a lot countrywide and, and you've seen the emergence of these collectives outside of Mexico City. And your article also documents the rather violent response to this activism by the police in, in the periphery. Uh, you know, it seems like actually like really egregiously violent uh, response to, you know, instances of protest and direct action. Absolutely. I think that, like I mentioned before, the police in the state of Mexico and specifically in the periphery have a reputation for being more corrupt and more violent, um, for instance, than Mexico City, right? Which is the point of reference just because they are so close to one another. And so the, the example that I describe in the article is a, was a pretty high profile instance in which a group of women tried to do a peaceful takeover of the branch office of the National Commission of Human Rights in Ecatepec in the state of Mexico. And it was in solidarity with a takeover of the, the, the national sort of office in Mexico City that was successful. Um, happened a week after that takeover. And it appeared that, you know, for the day, it appeared that they had gotten away with it until at about 11 p.m., the police broke down the door and took them to, well, they, they put them in trucks and, and it was unclear where they were going to take them. There's... Uh, you know, I think there, there's speculation from, from the women I interviewed in the article that they were going to be disappeared, right? That these women were going to be, um, you know, murdered and done away with. And whether or not, you know, that was the authority's intention, 
I, I can't corroborate without the authorities, but the, there was real sort of politics of fear at work in a way that did not happen um, with the protesters doing the very same thing in Mexico City. And that's obviously a particularly extreme example, but for instance, um, some other examples, well, there's one at the end of the article uh, during one of the performance art events that I talk about in which the police told them they needed to leave, um, even though they were, it was a small group of women doing, doing performance art in a public space. And I, I heard a lot of stories similar to that in, in the interviews I did. For instance, um, another collective told me about doing a small protest and being detained by the police because rather on the, on the pretext of COVID, right? Being told you cannot congregate uh, because of COVID. And so then they were taken to the police station, right? And, and, and held. Uh, and so I think that one of the main differences for the women protesters in Mexico City versus in the periphery is this very hostile relationship with, um, with the police. There's one woman gave me a, a quotation that I'm not sure whether it ended up in the article or not, but she said, you know, like in, in Mexico City, there's a massive protest and the police show up with riot gear. And she said, here, there are 15 of us and they show up with rifles, right? Like um, that this, there's this difference uh, in, in terms of the, the, the violence that the police are willing to execute. So lastly, I mean, do you see this kind of resistance uh, able to affect meaningful systemic change? Or perhaps to put another way, what else is needed to be done in order for activist groups like the ones you described to, you know, get to the point where there is this meaningful change? That's a really good question. I think that it's something I'm still trying to answer for myself in, in large part because you, you have sort of two complex dynamics. One is who is committing the feminicides and how, how do you make that stop? And the other is how do, what can the authorities do to better the situation? And of course they go hand in hand because I think that for instance, the oppression a lot of women have is that uh, were, were the authorities to take feminicide seriously and investigate the murders because another, I think important statistic is, is that in Mexico, something like 93% of murders go uninvestigated. That a very, just, I mean, a shockingly high number of, of murders go uninvestigated. And so there's a sense among, among women that, that perpetrators feel like they can get away with it because in general they can. And so I think that you have, yeah, these, these interlocking dynamics of one, people need to stop committing feminicide and two, the authorities need to take it more seriously and, um, and help prevent it from happening as well. Something that I admire quite a lot about Mexican feminism is the way that there is a very clear understanding by the activists of the the sort of the way that a patriarchal structure 
is embedded in the state. And so the way that this sort of like fundamental masculinity of the state is itself a form of violence. And so I think that that is a contribution sort of to feminist philosophy, right? That, um, that I don't necessarily, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting maybe coming from, um, coming from the US. And I think that that perspective is, is really powerful, but it also um, signals a really fundamental challenge of if, if we are living in a fundamentally patriarchal state, how really can you stop having gender violence? So it's a, I think it's a, a really big question for activists. And I'm not sure that I have um, a great answer, <laughs> honestly. Um, well, 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 sometimes not a great answer is the best answer. <laughs> okay. uh, so, so thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating article. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate your interest. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Caroline Tracy. And again, please visit resilience.stanleycenter.org to view this article and other articles in this series. We'll see you next time. Bye.